Moshe Rabbeinu was sent on the greatest shlichus, sent to be the savior of the Jewish people, to take the Klai Yisrael out of Shibud, out of their enslavement. But from the moment that Moshe Rabbeinu engaged in this process, not only didn't it go well, it turned from bad to worse. The oppression got far more difficult. And Paro took away the amount of tevin, the amount of straw that he had been providing, and things began getting progressively worse and worse. And at a certain point, the Klayasrol had apparently a complaint against Moshe Rabbeinu, and Moshe Rabbeinu, the true lover of the Klayasrol, turned to Hashem and said the words, Lama hari osa la'am hazeh, lama shalachtani. Why have you made it bad for this people, and why did you send me? And the Mepharshim explained to us that Moshe Rabbeinu said to Hashem, I understand that you have a calculation. Hashem, you are the master of the universe, and you have a reason why you feel the oppression needs to be more difficult, it needs to be more pain, but I don't want to be a part of causing my nation pain. If you wish to do this, count me out of the picture. And while those words were said with tremendous love of a manig, of the leader of the Klai Yisrael, nevertheless, there was a complaint. Hashem said, Chaval al di avdim It's a shame that which we used to have and we no longer have. Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov, those were great people. Many, many times they could have asked questions. Many, many times I said to Avram, he'll have a land that's so wide and so vast, then when he goes to bury his wife, he has to pay 400 shkolem. Yitzhak had many questions to ask. Yaakov had many questions to ask. Never did they ask. They always trusted. You, Moshe Rabbeinu, the first bump in the road. It's Lama Hariosa. <clears throat> Why do you make it bad for these people? Lama Zeshlachtani. Chaval al di avdim lamashtachim. They don't make them like they used to. And Rashi explains that that's effectively what Hashem said to Moshe Rabbeinu. And Rashi quotes the Gemara in Sanhedrin that apparently Hashem had a complaint, and because of this complaint, Moshe Rabbeinu did not make it into Eretz Yisrael. He wasn't the one to lead them into Eretz Yisrael. But the problem with this Gemara is that it's very clear from this Gemara that there was once a people who were greater than Moshe. Avram, Yitzhak, those are great people. Moshe, you're great, but you're nowhere near was the others. The problem with this Gemara is that it's not correct. The Rambam says, Av b'chokma, av b'nevuah. Moshe Rabbeinu was in a different league than any other human being. As great as the Ovos were, Moshe Rabbeinu was in a totally different category. The Achronim called Moshe Rabbeinu, Bechir Shebemin Hanushi, single greatest human being who ever lived. It's very clear that Moshe Rabbeinu was on a level much, much greater than even with the Ovos. Yet this Gemara seems to say the exact opposite. Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov, those are great people. You, Moshe, you're nowhere near their level. So the question is, how do we understand this? How do we understand what this Gemara is saying? And to understand this, I think the first step is sort of stepping back to some of the basics of our religion. We banty around certain words, certain expressions, and I think we rarely truly understand what they mean. Bitochan, amuna, have bitochan, have amuna, have bitochan, everything will be good. If it's not good yet, it means it's not the end. We'll say all kinds of expressions, and I think oftentimes people don't really recognize what it is that they're saying. So what I'd like to do is spend a few minutes understanding what amuna is, what bitochan is, and then we'll see if that sheds some light on this chazal. 
So let's begin with the following. If you want the simplest definition of emuna, it's probably the statement of the Rambam. It's gathered from the Rambam's writings, mostly from what he writes in Mesechtis and Sanhedrin. But it's one of the animamins. Animamim bemuna shalema. I understand with a clear total recognition that the Creator who bore umanhig bruim. He is the Creator and one who orchestrates everything in creation. Levado and He alone Asa He alone orchestrates every activity in existence. In plain, simple language, no random happenstances. No, just occurrences. Hashem clearly engaged, involved in everything that happens in creation. Bore umanhig, the one who created, maintains, and orchestrates everything happening in creation. And that's the basic definition of emuna. But that's not bitochen. Bitochen is something very different. The Chovos of Ovos and Shar Bitochen describes bitochen. Menuchas nefesh a relaxing of the soul of the one who trusts. He's trusting in Hashem. Trusting that Hashem will do for him what's best for him. And even more, says, says the Chavos Vavos, taking my heavy load and transferring it to Hashem. Trusting in Hashem's decree, relying on Hashem, taking my heavy load and transferring it to Hashem. You see, Emunah is recognizing that Hashem created and runs the world. Bitochen is something different altogether. Bitochen is trusting, relying, and depending on Hashem, knowing that Hashem is taking care of me, knowing that Hashem is guiding me, and knowing that Hashem has my best interest at heart. And apparently, you could have Emunah and not have Bitochen. And I'll share with you two very interesting examples. <clears throat> One is from Paro. Eitza Amuka. The Medrash describes that he gave wise advice, deep advice to his people. The Jewish people were exploding, exponentially <clears throat> growing. The population growth was out of control. And at a certain point, they realized that <clears throat> the Mitzvah would be run out of their own country. And they came to Paro and said, what do we do? Paro said, Fools. What are you going to do, burn the babies? What do you want to do, hang them? Whatever you do, their God will do back to you. Listen to me, says Paro. Throw them into the Nile. God promised that he'll never bring another flood. After the Mabel, he promised he'll never bring another flood. I know the way God works. Measure for measure. If we burn the babies, God will burn us. If we hang the babies, God will hang us. If we drown the babies, God will wish to pay us back in that way, but He promised He'll never bring another flood. Eitzah Amuka, wise advice, Paro said to his people. Now let's focus on this medrash for a minute. Paro had a certain level of amuna. He recognized that God runs the world. He even recognized Mida Kenegimida, one of the traits with which Hashem runs the world. He sure recognized Hashem running the world, but he sure didn't trust Hashem. Relying on Hashem, trusting in Hashem was not in his vernacular. Quite the opposite, he was waging war against God. Emunah is a recognition that Hashem runs the world. 
Bitochen is entrusting Hashem, relying on Hashem. And I'll share with you an example of a person who have and can have emuna and not a bitochen in a lot more pedestrian sort of way. I was a high school rebbe for many years, and there was one fellow who at least once a week I had to deprogram. At least once a week he would come to me and say, Hashem is out to get me. And he would show me exactly how. This, this guy said this and this happened and this happened. You see that? See, Hashem is out to get me. Now that fellow clearly saw Hashem actively engaged in his life, running his life. But that was the problem. Hashem was the problem. That fellow had emuna. He recognized Hashem's involvement in his life. But he sure didn't have bitachon. And Amuna is a clear recognition that Hashem orchestrates every activity under the sun, but Bitochen is trusting, relying, taking my heavy load and transferring it to Hashem. And I believe that's the answer to this Chazal. In the course of history, there never was a human being who had the clarity of Moshe Rabbeinu. Bas Baklari Ameiria, he saw Hashem absolutely as clearly as a human being can. As I see an object that's right here, it's physically palpable, it's touchable, I can feel it, I can know it's here. And he saw Hashem with that level of clarity. No human being ever reached that level, no human being ever will. But that's emuna. Bitochen is something different. Unwavering trust. When it's black, when it's dark, when I don't know the answer. Hashem said to Avram Avinu, Ki Yitzchak will be the progenitor, will be the father of the Jewish nation. And then Hashem said the words to him, Ola, and bring him up as a carbon. That's a contradiction. There is no answer. And knowing that because I don't know the answer doesn't mean that there isn't an answer. And knowing that just because I don't understand it doesn't mean that Hashem doesn't have a very good plan here. Trusting Hashem when I don't know why. And trusting Hashem when I can't see the future. Relying, trusting. That's a very different midah. And apparently, Moshe Meno, at least at this stage, was far greater in emuna in seeing Hashem. But this unwavering trust, this bitachon, apparently the Avos had reached to a higher level, this ability to be boteach, to trust in Hashem. And this distinction between emuna and bitachon is not a small one, because it underscores so much of our avodas Hashem, and so much of what we do. And I believe that's, again, the answer to this Gemara. And I'd like to spend a few minutes seeing if we could lay out the basics to each, to emuna, to understanding the levels of emuna, and then seeing if we could also do the same for bitachon. So let's begin with emuna. There are four levels to basic emuna. The first level of emuna is knowing that Hashem created the world. Knowing there was nothing, Hashem said by He, and everything came into creation. Now, you may say to me, that one is obvious got no problem with that one. I get that one. That one's easy. Well, I'd like to share with you, I don't believe it's so simple. And how do I know? One-seventh of your life is dedicated to getting that principle. Shabbos is zeichel lemasebereshis. We disengage in malacha for 25 hours. Why? To bring home to ourselves the fact that Hashem is the bore, Hashem is the creator and we human beings don't engage in cre- supposedly creative acts to bring home to my mind the understanding that Hashem is the creator and I am the creation. Shabbos, the theme and the underlying concept that 
goes under everything of Shabbos is the fact that Hashem created the entire world. And I'd like to explain to you why it is that it's not so simple. You see, when one of my daughters was about six years of age, she went to school and they were learning about my separations, about creation. And she comes back and she says, Abba, I get it. Before Hashem created the world, there were no trees, there were no oceans. I get it, Abba, but um, what color was it? What color was it? And I'd like to share with you that she was actually asking a very interesting question. Because if you try to imagine what it was like before Hashem created the world, imagine, close your eyes for a moment, and try to imagine the moment before Hashem created the world. Typically, what do you see? You'll see black. But you see black is a color. Even vacuum implies physicality. And before Hashem said Vayihi, there was absence of anything. There was no sand to build bricks out of, no atoms to make molecules, no quarks to build with. From absolute, complete absence of anything, Hashem said Vayihi and a hundred billion galaxies, each containing a hundred billion stars, came into existence. And when you think about the moment before creation, and then open your eyes and look at creation, what you realize is there was no item that was duplicated. There was no prototype before that Hashem said, let me borrow from, let me take from. Everything from anew, everything without began, and Hashem created a world with such wonder, such complexity. And I'd like to share with you just one simple observation of this world because I think it'll help us hone in on why this is such a chiddish, knowing that Hashem created the world. Imagine for a minute the following. I run a Torah organization, and imagine that funds are tight. I know that may be a little difficult to imagine, but imagine that I decide this is crazy, this begging and borrowing, and here's a plan. I'm going to the greatest Kabbalist in Svas, I'm going to ask him for a bracha, and we're going to solve the financial problem. That's it. I get on a plane, and I find myself the most famous hidden Kabbalist in all of Israel. I go for a bracha. I walk in, and he's got the whole thing, the black candles. And he looks at me, and he says, Aha, you're doing good work. I like what you're doing. I know why you're here. I want you to take this envelope. You go back to America. Whatever it says on it, you do. Shalom a bracha. He writes some words on the piece of paper puts it in an envelope, hands it to me, and says goodbye. Okay, <clears throat> listen, I don't know what about it. <clears throat> Get back on the plane, and I open the envelope, and in the envelope is this piece of paper that says, I want you to go <clears throat> to Walmart, buy a hundred matchbox cars, then place them <clears throat> in the parking lot, say these words, light these candles, shalom abracha. I said to myself, well, all right, listen, he's a famous Kabbalist who knows grandson of Baba Sali. All right, fine. I land, head straight to Walmart, and buy myself 100 matchbox cars, lay them out exactly as he says, six feet between them. I go into the basement, say the words, light the candles, and suddenly as I look out into the parking lot, these two-inch matchbox cars begin growing and growing. <clears throat> Full-size SUVs, luxury vans, cars. And then I read the statement on the bottom, sell the cars, shalom abracha, you'll do well. Imagine that were to happen. 
Imagine that this Kabbalist were to give me some secret words and suddenly these tiny little toy cars were to grow into full-size vehicles. I'd fall on my face saying, Hashem, look in what a naze, what a miracle. Do you understand that we eat food every day? The food that we eat grows from the ground. Corn, wheat, barley, potatoes, it comes up from the ground on its own. And if you go to a cornfield in the end of the summer, six feet tall, laden, perfectly encapsulated with the covering on the corn, and you peel it back, and the corn is the perfect texture with just the right sweetness, all of it arranged, all of it designed, just coming from the ground. Now, that doesn't cause any sense of wow, because <laughs> that's just nature. Of course, apples grow on trees, and oranges grow on trees. That's not a big deal. Chassam Sofer explains that when Yeshua brought the Bnei Yisrael into Eretz Yisrael, when he brought the Jewish people into Yisrael, he said, watch carefully. I'm going to show you miracles that you've never seen before. He took seeds, put them in the ground, and began watering. And he said, come back tomorrow. They came back the next day. He watered some more. Come back the next day, the next day, the next day. And suddenly from the ground, sproutlings began forming. And they began growing and growing. And explains the Chassam Sofer, don't you understand? The generation that came into the land of Israel were all born in the Midbar, in the desert. Anyone 20 or older died in the Midbar. The generation entering Eretz were basically all born in the Midbar. What did you eat when you were in the desert? You ate mun. Mun was, was this miraculous food that was brought to your doorstop every morning. Exactly what was needed for you and your family was there. But this generation entering the land of Israel had never seen agriculture. They'd never seen seeds, harvesting, crops. They didn't know what that meant. And Yeshua said, watch. Watch from the ground as miraculously food begins emerging with all the right flavors, textures, aroma exactly formed. And no less a miracle than a little toy car growing into a full-size SUV is the fact that the food that we eat comes out of the ground just like that. And if a person were able to stop and focus on that, they would see miracles upon miracles upon miracles, and they would say to themselves, Oh my goodness, the wonders of Hashem's creation. And if you really want to understand this concept, I'll share with you three interesting questions. And these three questions I claim, you ask them to any atheist. Find your local atheist, ask them these three questions, and if he can answer them, I take my hat off. Here are the three questions. I want you to imagine you're looking at it, a beautiful orchard, beautiful, laden with hundreds and hundreds of orange trees. And you see the trees are bursting forth. All the oranges are hanging low. Beautiful. Here's question number one. The tree weighs thousands of pounds, right? Where does it all start from? It all starts from a little seed, right? The seed weighs maybe, I don't know, a tenth of an ounce, and put the seed in the ground, and thousands of pounds of stuff begins forming, and you have this big, beautiful orange tree. Question number one is, where does that stuff come from? You know, the bark, the wood, all the thousands of pounds. Where does that stuff come from, right? The seed weighs a tenth of an ounce. The tree weighs thousands of pounds. Where do the thousand pounds of stuff come from? And if you'll tell me from the ground, I'd like to share with you that that's not correct. If you were to take a large metal vat, 
put 500 pounds of dirt into it. Put a seed into it. Leave it out, enough sunlight, enough rain. Within 10 years, you'll have a fully formed orange tree, but still 500 pounds of dirt. Would you like to know where the stuff of the tree comes from? It's actually quite simple. A process called photosynthesis. The leaves <clears throat> absorb the sunlight, mix in a little bit of carbon carbon dioxide, a little bit of water, and they synthesize. The leaves synth- make a new product that wasn't there before. The thousands of pounds of stuff of the tree are made by the leaves synthesizing, making their own stuff. Hmm, that's pretty interesting. Tree making its own stuff. Okay, but here's question number two. <clears throat> question number two is when you bite into that orange, you get that tangy, sweet, delicious sort of flavor. Where did the sweetness of the orange come from. Now, if you bite into the pit, you'll find it's rather bitter. And water is basically tasteless. The dirt, you ever hear the expression, I'm going to make you eat dirt, boy? I don't know if you've ever eaten dirt, but I don't think it's very sweet. And if you dig down to China, it's not that sweet. Where does the sweetness come from? The answer, again, is photosynthesis. You see, the leaves absorb the sunlight, mix in a little bit of carbon dioxide, a little bit of water, and lo and behold, whoosh, they synthesize, they make a new product. The sweetness, tangy sort of citrusy flavor comes from the leaves. Now, that's mighty interesting because there are no elves who, you know, got the recipe, exactly the tangy, no. Just on its own, <clears throat> leaves synthesize, make the stuff of the tree, <clears throat> the leaves synthesize and make the sweetness of the orange. Okay, good. So question one and question two, our atheist got past. Let's deal with question number three. <clears throat> question number three is, what color is the orange? Now, that's a trick question because the orange is orange, right? Question number three is, where did the orange color come from? The pit <clears throat> on the outside is white. The inside is kind of gray. Water is basically colorless. The dirt is brown. And again, dig down to China. No color pigment in there, orange. Where does the orange color come from? So again, the basic answer is the leaves absorb the sunlight and they synthesize and they create a new product. They create the color of the orange. Do you know the exact color blend? How much red, how much blue, how much yellow you have to mix in to create the orange color? Do you understand that the skin of the orange has the color because that's the part that attracts you, but the inside, when you peel it back, is white? Do you understand when you break the peel, it lets out a burst of aroma? But that, when you touch it, that spray, that mist, tastes bitter. When you break the peel, it lets out that burst to enhance the experience of eating, and that fragrance is there, but you're not eating the peel, so therefore it's bitter. The outside is eye-attractive, the inside isn't. And when you peel the orange, you'll see the 12 wedges. And when you peel back the wedge, you'll see that the wedge has hundreds of little juice sacs so that when you bite into the wedge, you get that burst of flavor. And if you think about the fact that all of that has just come from the ground, no elves kind of guiding things, the ground itself bringing forth this tree, creating, photosynthesizing the stuff of the tree, photosynthesizing the sweetness of the orange, photosynthesizing the color, When you study nature, you should say this is astonishing beyond any human understanding. And that is exactly why the first level of Amuna is not so simple. 
You see, I'm supposed to look at the creation with eyes wide open. I'm supposed to look at the creation and say, this is astonishing. And I've often said this, that there should be renaming of certain courses. Biology should be Emuna 101. Chemistry, Emuna 102. Physics, Emuna 103. Study any part of this world. The complexity, the systems. And you see the wonders of Hashem's world. You see the brilliance. You see the capacity of our Creator. But again, it requires stopping. It requires once a week stopping the busyness, stopping the static and focusing on it. It requires understanding. But this is the first level of Amuna, knowing that Hashem created the world. And again, while it sounds simple, it isn't that simple. However, things progress. The first level of Amuna is knowing Hashem created the world, and the second level is something different altogether. The second level of Amuna is knowing that Hashem is involved in the big picture issues of life. Which nation will succeed, which nations will go to war, which new technologies will will be brought to the market, which new diseases will suddenly appear. Understanding that Hashem runs the entire world. We say the words in Rosh Hashanah, each human being's fate is determined. If you'd like to understand what that means, it means simply that the headlines of the New York Times are written on Rosh Hashanah. But not just the headlines of the New York Times, the headline, the local section, the international section, every detail about what happens in the world is determined by Hashem on Rosh Hashanah, and then Hashem is there 24-7, 365 to carry that out. Now, a number of years ago, the New York Times bragged about having 400 full-time news correspondents and some hundred or so full-time photographers, because on this planet, occupied by seven and a half billion odd people, there's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of intertwined and interwoven things, and if you think Hashem, of Hashem as that grand master sitting over the multi-tiered chessboard, putting this point into position, moving this rook, arranging, orchestrating mankind's fate, that's Hashem's role in the world. And the first level of Amuna is knowing that Hashem created the world. The second level of Amuna is knowing that Hashem is involved in the big picture issues of life, life and death, <clears throat> world famine, world expanse, prosperity, that Hashem is involved in the running of the day-to-day of the world. And those two concepts, the first, Hashem created the world, and the second, Hashem runs the big picture from a global perspective, are the first two levels of Amunah. The third level of Amunah is something different altogether. If you'd like to understand the third level of Amunah, I'll give you an interesting marshal parable. Imagine you hear about this rabbi from Muncie. Here he's a real nice guy. I hear every Friday he goes to this old woman's house. She's a widow. And I hear he helps her shop, he helps her clean. I heard he's even on his on his knees cleaning the floor. Oh, this Rabbi Schaefer, what a nice guy he is. Oh, you're very impressed. Until you find out that this woman has an estate worth $15 million and no living heirs. Oh, nice guy. You see, my intentions don't color my actions. My intentions define my actions. If those actions are kindly giving, caring for an old woman, or if those actions are my attempt to get rich, my intentions are what define my actions. 
And if you'd like to understand why this is relevant, it's because if I believe in schar v'onish, if I believe in reward and punishment, perforce I believe that Hashem reads my thoughts as I'm thinking them. That Hashem knows exactly where I'm at. Hashem knows my history. Hashem knows my past. Hashem knows what's going on in my mind at this moment. Because if I don't accept the fact that Hashem reads my thoughts as I'm thinking them, then there can be no mishpat, there can be no justice. Because so many times what I did isn't just what I did, it's why I did it. And why I did it defined what it is, but more than that, where I'm coming from, how difficult or how not difficult, how much of a challenge, how much was the situation to me? And knowing that Hashem knows my history, was with me as a little boy, was with me throughout my growth, that Hashem knows my thoughts as I'm thinking them, is the third level of Amuna. Knowing that Hashem reads through me like a book. And if you'd like to have a little practice in the third level of Amuna, I have a very simple exercise. The next time you daven Shemona Esrei, read the last Pasuk. Every Shemona Esrei, we end with the Pasuk, Yiyu l'ratzon imrei fi vegan libi l'fanecha. We say to Hashem as Bakasha, let the words of my mouth and the thoughts of my heart find favor in your eyes. You see, I don't have to speak out the thoughts of my heart for Hashem to hear them. I speak out the words of davening for me. To have, it, have a chalos, to have, it, have a din of tefillah. But my thoughts, the thoughts of my heart, Hashem reads through as I'm thinking them. And if you'd like a mashal, a mahadavadomer, what it's comparable to, if you go back to high school, you remember that lucite man, the model of a human being, and the outside was lucite, was clear plastic, and inside you could see the organs. There's the lungs, the pancreas, the stomach, the outside was transparent, so you could see the organs within him. That's me when I stand in front of Hashem, Dominic Shemonesri. Hashem peers through me like the lucite man. Hashem knows my thoughts. Hashem knows my past. Hashem knows my present. And Hashem knows exactly where I'm at, knows my thoughts as I'm thinking them. If the first level of Amunah is knowing that Hashem created the world, the second level of Amunah is knowing that Hashem runs the big picture issues, the global issues of the world. The third level of Amunah is knowing that Hashem <coughs> reads my thoughts as I'm thinking them. But the fourth level of Amunah <coughs> is where the real action is at. If you'd like to understand the fourth level of Amunah, let me give you a little mushal, a little parable. Imagine that you and I <coughs> are walking, and it's a little bit late at night, and uh, it's very dark, and a little bit cold. And I, I kind of pull my coat a little bit colder, <clears throat> closer to me, kind of shivering a little bit. And I do notice that I haven't seen anybody in the street in a good long while. And suddenly a car stops. Shoom! Three thugs jump out. <clears throat> One holds a gun pointed directly at my head. Okay. Here's the question. I am a mamin. <clears throat> I accept the fact that on Rosh Hashanah, Hashem decrees miyechia umiyamos who will live and who will die. What good is that decree back in Tishrei, back in September, when right now it's February, and my life is in the hands of this punk? What good is Hashem's decree so many months back, when whether I live or die is in the hands of this drug-crazed kid, what good is Hashem's gzera? And this question underscores one of the basics of our immunosystem, system. And that is that 
if I accept the fact that Hashem decrees who will live and who will die, perforce I also accept the fact that Hashem is on the scene 24-7, 365 to carry out that decree. Because if Hashem isn't here, then Hashem's decree is useless. And what that means in plain, simple language is, if my time is up, if on the previous Rosh Hashanah it was decreed that this is the last year of my life, there's nothing that you or I or anyone's going to do to change it. It's Seischem the Shalom, curtains over, down, done. However, if on the previous Rosh Hashanah it was decreed that I will live, there are many, many messengers that Hashem will send. The New York City Fire Department shows up at a false alarm. A cab driver somehow jumps the curb. Somehow, something, the kid drops the gun, he misfires. There are many, many ways that Hashem will keep the decree. But you see, the fourth level of Amunah is knowing that Hashem is intimately involved in the running of my life. Right there, 24-7, 365, every day. And this concept is the bedrock basics of our Amuna system. And if you don't understand this, then any concept called Amuna, any concept called Bitachan, can't begin. The first level of Amuna is knowing that Hashem created the world, that everything that my eye sees was brought into existence and is held in existence by Hashem. The second level of Amuna is knowing that Hashem runs the big picture issues of life, the global issues, the running of the world, like the master at the chessboard. The third level of Amuna is knowing that Hashem reads my thoughts as I'm thinking them. I'm the transparent man. But the fourth level of Amuna is where the real action's at, and that's knowing that Hashem is there 24-7, 365, every day, all day, because if that part isn't true, then anything beyond this is folly, and the concept of trusting in Hashem is foolish. Imagine if you and I are walking down that street, and when those three thugs jump out of the car, I say to you, listen, fella, don't worry. You got nothing to worry about. At home, I got a big gun. I got a 45mm, 14 rounds, one in the chamber. You don't got to worry about these guys. I got a big gun at home. I assume you would not be very satisfied with that expression because my big gun that I have at home doesn't do us any good because right now there are three thugs, us two, and we're in big trouble. And understanding that Hashem is here is the basics of Amuna. If you think that Hashem is up there in the heavens, Hashem, can you hear me 13 billion light years away? Then Hashem is irrelevant. What difference does it matter what Hashem thinks? And what difference does it matter what Hashem feels? Hashem isn't here. It's me and this punk, and I'm in big trouble. It's like having a big gun at home. My big gun at home ain't going to help me because I am alone. It's me and him. And the fourth level of Amuna is cutting through the noise cutting through the haze and recognizing that Hashem is present right here, 24-7, 365. Because if Hashem isn't here, then any decree that Hashem decrees is irrelevant, is worthless. And these are the first four levels of Amuna, knowing that Hashem created the world, knowing that Hashem runs the big picture issues of life, knowing that Hashem reads my thoughts as I'm thinking them, and number four, knowing that Hashem is intimately involved in the running of my life. But all of this has nothing to do with Bitochen. Bitochen is a whole different ball of wax. Bitochen is trusting, relying on, 
depending on Hashem. And Bitochen is taking my heavy load and transferring it to my Creator. And there are two thoughts that you have to have firmly entrenched to know and understand. And only when you have these two thoughts firmly in your essence can you have any level of Bitochen. The first thought is pretty easy to attain. The second thought is very, very difficult. The first thought that a person has to have if they want to have any level of bitachon is knowing that Hashem loves me more than I love me. The Chovetz of Lovavos explains, as much as I want my betterment, as much as I want everything good for me, as much as I want my life and my existence to be good, Hashem wants it even more. As much as I love me, Hashem loves me even more than I could ever love myself. And the Chovos of Ovos explains to us, imagine the most kindly, giving, loving human being you could ever imagine. Overflowing compassion. Imagine Avram Avinu, an unbridled love. Take that love and multiply it 10,000, 10,000, 10,000 times, and you don't even have an inkling to the unbridled love that Hashem has for any one of His creations. The first concept of Bitochan is knowing that as much as I want what's good for me, Hashem wants it more. As much as I want my betterment, Hashem wants it more. As much as I care about me, Hashem cares more. As much as I love me, Hashem loves me even more. And this concept, while it sounds a bit heady, isn't really that difficult to attain. If you want a simple exercise, just watch a young father, a young mother, holding that newborn infant. That love, that compassion, the mother, the father, they'll give their lives for the child. They never met the child. They didn't know the child. Six hours ago, the child wasn't in the world. And yet, that paternal instinct, the maternal instinct is so powerful, so powerful that the mother will give up anything in the world for that child. Where does that come from? That was implanted into her by our Creator. And it's a main, it's a small fraction of the love that Hashem has for any one of his creations, study the human attributes of love, mercy, kindliness, you'll see but a shadow image, totally scaled down of what Hashem feels at any moment. And again, the first concept that requires really working on is knowing that Hashem loves me more than I love me. And again, this one I claim is not that difficult. This one takes work, but it's not that hard. It's a second concept that gives us so much, so much trouble. The second concept is that Hashem knows better than I what's for my best. As much as I think I know what I need, as much as I think I know what's best, as much as I think I know what has to happen for my betterment, Hashem knows even better than I. And if you'd like to see this concept in very clear ways, I'll share with you one observation. I believe that 80% of our Emunah problems, 80% of our philosophical dilemmas stem from one mistake we make. That mistake is called playing God. Playing God means, I know what I need. I know how things are supposed to be. I need to marry that woman. I need to get that job. I need to get my kid into that class. I know what's the best. And, And more than that, I daven to Hashem, I broker a deal, I'll learn the daf yomi, I'll do this, I'll do that. And, and Hashem's not providing it. Hashem, I don't get it. Are you angry with me? You have tiny Hashem, what's the deal? I need this, it has to happen, and you're not doing Hashem, why did you leave me? Lama Zavtani, Hashem, why? 
And I claim that 80% of our emuna difficulties stem from this problem called playing God. Playing God means I know exactly what I need. Playing God means I know the future, I know why this is for the best, and it has to happen. And how many times do you hear that the fellow had to marry that woman, I needed to marry that woman, and he doesn't marry that woman. She marries somebody else. And two years later, he finds out that the term mentally unstable is an understatement to describe her state. I need to get that job. And he doesn't get the job. Three years later, he finds out the entire industry is shipped over to India. I need to get my kid into that class. And six months later, he finds out that there was another child in that class who would have been the worst possible influence on his child. Playing God means I know the future and I try to convince God to go along with it and sometimes Hashem just doesn't do it. And I don't get it. I have complaints. I have tainas. You see, betochen is not trusting God to do my bidding. Betochen means trusting Hashem and trusting in Hashem's decree, trusting in Hashem's plan, trusting that Hashem knows better than I what's for my best. The first concept is knowing that Hashem loves me more than I love me. The second concept is knowing that Hashem knows better than I what's for my best. And this one we kick around, and this one we get into so much trouble with because so many times a person will be working on bitachon, working on bitachon, and then it doesn't happen. Oh, Hashem, why me? And just study. The next time you have a complaint, a question, and ask yourself one simple question on that. What is my question? My question is based on the fact that I know what I need. I see it right here. And this is what's for the best, and Hashem's not providing it. But how many times do we find out that we're wrong? How good is my vision? Can I see six months into the future? Can I see two years into the future? Do I know where I'm going to be ten years from now? Do I know what I need? I can't know. Those things are way, way beyond my capacity. My job is the creation. Hashem is the creator. Trusting Hashem means trusting in Hashem's decree. Not trusting that Hashem is going to do what I want. Not trusting that I get to write the script and Hashem will hmm, just play along with me. Uh-uh. And trusting that Hashem knows better than I what's for my best. Many times in this world, many times for the world to come. But one thing for sure, the first concept is knowing that Hashem loves me more than I love me. And the second concept is knowing that Hashem knows better than I what's for my best. And by the way, would you like a little test of your bitachon? Ever want to take one of those litmus tests, see how you're holding, how you rate on the scale? I have a very simple um, little test. As a matter of fact, two little simonim, two little signs that will right away show you where you're at in bitachon. The first is something that women will relate to much more quickly than most men will, but here we go. The first one is, do you ever feel anxiety, dread, fear, Anxiety, dread, trepidation is a lack of itachan. Now, don't get me wrong. We're not Sarimenu. We're not Avram Avinu. We're going to feel fear. We're going to feel trepidation. But that's just a sign to me to get to work. What that means is I get it. I still think that I run the world. I still think the world runs with happenstance. I still think that powerful, mean people can determine my outcome. 
explains the Chovos of Lovos, I have to recognize that no human being can help me, no human being can harm me. You can scheme, you can dream, but I walk around with a loose sight bubble protecting me. You can try to throw bricks into it, you can try to shoot. Hashem is there protecting me, guiding me. No human being can harm me. And as no human being can harm me, no human being can help me either. And my uncle could be the head of Sloan Kettering. If my time is up, it's over. And my friend could be the most wealthiest fellow in North America. He'll give me money, goes in this pocket, goes out the other. And knowing that no human being can harm me, no human being can help me, means knowing that Hashem runs my world. And anxiety is the first test of Itachan. Again, it's natural to experience it. It's natural to feel it. But that's the signal to get to work. I get it. The reason I'm afraid is because I forgot that Hashem is here. The reason I'm fearful is because I forgot that Hashem runs the world. And that's when you're supposed to go back and work on it, grow in it. But the first test of Bitochen is anxiety. If you'd like to understand the second test, I'll give you a muscle that I think is very, very eye-opening. I was a high school Rebbe for many years, and obviously a big part of a high school Rebbe's job is to teach the fellows how to learn. But I felt as equal to that, what my job was to teach them how to live, teach them about life. And I used to read a lot, I still do, and my kids used to make fun because then Amazon was a beginning company, it was they were calling themselves the largest bookstore in in the world. And Amazon used to deliver twice a week to my house, different books I'd read, go through. And I was amazed by that company. On time, every time, exactly as promised. My wife and I were married not that long. And uh, again, I was a regular fan of Amazon. And I read that Amazon was going public. The IPO was coming out in a few months and so I said to my wife, you know what, I think I'm going to invest in the IPO. <clears throat> she said, what do you mean? I said, you know, I'd like to take $2,000 and buy <clears throat> some shares in the initial public offering. I think it's a really good company. I'm really impressed with the concept. I'm impressed with the idea. <clears throat> my wife said, fine, you want to do it? Okay. Okay. <clears throat> the day before I was about to <clears throat> put the $2,000 into Amazon, my wife <clears throat> opened Newsweek. And in the back, there was the business section and they had a write-up about the Amazon initial public offering. <clears throat> what an audacity. Jeff Bezos is asking <clears throat> $15 a share. You know, he has a million dollars in personal credit card debt. There's no model for this business. <clears throat> it's so overpriced. It's so outrageous. On and on, the article was ragging against it. My wife read the article, brought it to me, and said, what do you want to do? I said, listen, <clears throat> whatever you want to do, I'm comfortable with. She said, I don't know, I'm just a little nervous. So, in fact, I didn't. I didn't invest $2,000 in Amazon. Okay, well, let's say I had. Let's say I had taken $2,000 back then, invested in Amazon, and held it till today. Those $2,000 today would be worth $3.6 million. Aw, shucks. But you see, aw, shucks is a lack of bitachon. As a person's Losses are set on Rosh Hashanah, so too the amount of money a person is to make is set on Rosh Hashanah. But what that Gemara means is the amount of money I am to make is set on Rosh Hashanah. The fact that my wife read Newsweek and not Time Magazine, which had a very different read about it, the fact that my wife even read that section of the, of the <clears throat> weekly that she never would read, 
Understanding that Hashem runs the world means understanding that Hashem decrees how much money I am to make and ah shucks is a lack of bitachon. Because if on the previous Rosh Hashanah I was supposed to make millions of dollars, then that's what would have happened. And if on the previous Rosh Hashanah I wasn't supposed to, then that's not what would have happened. And ah oh, shucks, ah oh, shucks, I should have invested in real estate. Oh, why didn't I get out of this? Why didn't I? Now don't get me wrong. You have to be prudent. You have to be wise. Hishtadlis means using the world in the ways of the world. But assuming you did, you're right, Hishtadlis. <clears throat> assuming you used your wisdom, you asked advice, you were prudent and careful, and you made a decision, you take your heavy load and you transfer to Hashem. Hashem, it's your world. You asked me to use the world in the ways of the world. That's what I've done. I've done my due diligence. I was prudent. I was wise. I made this investment. At the time, it sounded sound and wise. That's what I did. Now, Hashem, it's up to you. You see, number one, anxiety is the simon, the sign of a lack of trust. Number two is regrets. Oh, why didn't I? I should have. I could have. Now, again, if you were lazy, if you didn't get out of bed and didn't get a job, then there should be a lot of regrets. Regrets because, ah, darn, I didn't do what I was supposed to do. But assuming you were wise, assuming you were prudent, assuming that you used the world in the ways of the world, assuming you did your shtadlis properly, no regrets. <clears throat> Explains the Chovos of Ovos, regret does not exist in the heart of a Baal Bitochen. Complete equanimity, complete calm. Hashem runs the world exactly what Hashem decrees will be. My job is to use the world in the ways of the world. Then know, <clears throat> once I've done my shtadlis, it's Hashem's world. And I believe these concepts are basic to our religion. This Chazal is eye-opening because as great as Moshe Rabbeinu was in terms of Amuna, Amuna is, as the Rambam explains, Hashem is the one who runs all of the creations. And who Levado, he alone, he alone orchestrates every activity, that's Amuna, knowing that Hashem is totally involved in the running of the world. The first level of Amuna is knowing that Hashem created the world. The second level of Amuna is knowing Hashem runs the big picture issues of life. The third level of Amuna is knowing that Hashem reads my thoughts as I'm thinking them. And the fourth level of Amuna is knowing that Hashem is involved in the running of my day-to-day life. In those areas, there was nobody like Moshe Rabbeinu, Mas-Baklari with total clarity of vision. He saw Hashem running the world, orchestrating the world. But bitachon is something different. Bitachon is trust, unwavering trust. <clears throat> when it's black, when it's dark, when I don't know the answer. When to my mind's eye there can be no answer. And knowing that because I don't know the answer doesn't mean there isn't an answer. And knowing because I don't know the answer doesn't mean Hashem doesn't have a plan. Apparently the others, at least at that stage, were on a higher level. <clears throat> Avram Avinu was promised Yitzhak will be the father of the Jewish nation. And he took that Yitzhak and brought him to the slaughter because that's what Hashem said to do. I don't ask questions. I trust. I rely on Hashem. And Muna is recognizing that Hashem runs the world. Bitochen is then learning to trust in Hashem and learning to rely on Hashem. And Bitochen requires a whole different field of study. You see, Amuna, you grow in by studying the world. You study nature. You read biology textbooks. You look at the world and you say it's astonishing. Amuna, you grow in by reading the papers, but reading them like a Jew. I can't wait to see what Hashem has in mind here. I think the Jewish nation are in trouble. The Arabs are attacking. Anti-Semitism is on the rise. 
I can't wait to see what Hashem has in mind. And when you read the papers like a Jew, you grow in Amuna, you understand Hashem runs the world. But ultimately, if you want to grow in Amuna, probably the single most important book you'll ever read on Amuna is your autobiography. Autobiography means the book that you write about your own life. You see, autobiographies that you'll read about Ben Franklin and Thomas Edison, they're cute, but they're edited by the writer, and everything he does is good and right. Read your autobiography. I say every Jew has a story, how you ended up here, this one, that one, this one, you met this person, that person. Every Jew has a story, and when you read the story, and when you read it, your own life, and you realize that Hashem was here, Hashem helped me there, Hashem arranged it. The fact that I am where I am today is because Hashem orchestrated all of those parts. You begin to see the pattern. You begin to see a creator active in your life. And one of the best exercises to really grow in Emunah in the fourth level is to keep a diary. Every time you have one of those events, wow, it's Ashkoch, it's, it's, so, it's incredible, look what Hashem did. Write it down. Write it, at least the, the Rashi Prakam, at least the headlines, and write it down. Why? Because when you write it down and you start leafing through it, and you read this event and that event and this event and that, you, oh my goodness, Hashem was here, Hashem was there, Hashem, Hashem is there all the time. And it begun, begins to become real. When you read your autobiography, and especially when you start diaring it, and you keep Ashkacha Pratis diary, those strange events that you have to admit is clearly the Yad Hashem, you write it down. Then you're growing in the levels of Amuna. But again, Amuna means recognizing that Hashem created, recognizing Hashem maintains, recognizing Hashem orchestrates the world. But that's not Bitochen. Bitochen is a whole different parsha. Bitochen is relying on Hashem, trusting in Hashem. The first thought that you have to have for Bitochen is number one, that Hashem loves me more than I love me. And number two, that Hashem knows better than I what's for my best. When you have those two thoughts firmly entrenched, there is no anxiety, fear, dread. Come on, Shem is here. I'm walking with the U.S. Marine Corps. The entire U.S. Army is surrounding me. Shem is right here. I'm afraid. And again, we'll feel fear, but that just means to get to work. But the second thing is no regrets. No regrets because I've done my ishtadlis. I've been wise. I've been prudent. I used the world in a way that I should have, I could have, I would have. Again, if you weren't wise, if you weren't careful, if you were lazy, if you didn't care, you should feel a lot of regret. But the regret is, ah, oh, darn, why didn't I get my act together? But assuming that you did your ishtadlis properly, assuming that you did a normal ishtadlis, you used the world, well, I should have known, how could you have known? I should have read more books, you're not a scientist. I, I, did you ask a doctor? Yes. Yes, a second doctor? <clears throat> yes. I went for a third medical opinion, and then we're done. That's the best knowledge that I could attain at the time. And based on that knowledge, I made a decision. Now I know that it's up to shit. But if I didn't decide that, my mother would still be alive. One second. Your job is to use the world in the way of the world. You sought medical advice from an expert. You sought a second opinion. And maybe even a third. You did your job. Now you know it's Hashem's world. You take your heavy load and you transfer it to Hashem. The first test is no fear. The second test is no regret. And again, Moshe Rabbeinu reached the level of absolute clarity of Amuna, but apparently the unwavering trust, at least at this stage, the others were greater. And I want to close with one story that I'm very attached to, 
because it happened to a friend of mine, and it's something that I think is very, very eye-opening, and yet <clears throat> very, very <clears throat> telling in this regards. Every part of the story is <clears throat> exactly as it happened, except the name of the person. <clears throat> the person who it happened to asked me to change his name. He didn't want it public. So <clears throat> these are the events as it occurred. Chaim Goldstein was living in Kew Gardens. His brother-in-law was living in Forest Hills at the time. Chaim was learning Kolo. And his brother-in-law, sister-in-law, they invited them over to their house for Shabbos. Thursday night, Chaim's wife is cooking. She's preparing Shabbos because everyone's coming to her house for Shabbos. And she's about finishing up cooking. Her sister calls and says, you know, my husband came home late. He's kind of tired. We decided we're not coming for Shabbos. Chaim's wife says, what do you mean not coming? Do come, don't come, back and forth. And finally, Chaim's wife said, listen, I prepared the whole Shabbos anyway. Let's do this. Instead of everybody being by me, I'll pack up the food. And we'll all be by you. <clears throat> so that's what they made up. <clears throat> Instead of both families being at Chaim's house that Shabbos, both, both families were at the brother-in-law. Okay. <clears throat> Chaim describes Friday, he walks into his brother-in-law's house, and <clears throat> on the cocktail table is a book, Who by Fire. I don't know if you have <clears throat> had a chance to read this book, but it's the story of a <clears throat> young woman living in Shalayim. She's in her apartment, and suddenly the apartment itself bursts into flame. <clears throat> she runs out and finds herself in the hall, untouched. And she realizes that her kids are still in the apartment. And she runs in, grabs one child, runs in, grabs a second, runs in, grabs a third. In the end, she saved all of her children, but she suffered burns on 85% of her body. And the book is a harrowing read of what it's like to be burnt alive, a beautiful read of a woman's emuna habitachan, but it is a very, very powerful book. In any case, Chaim describes that he picked up the book and he was mesmerized. He couldn't put it down. He's a masmid. Normally on Shabbos he'd be learning Gemara. He read the book cover to cover, couldn't put it down. He didn't think much about it, but Shabbos afternoon, he walks to Yeshiva, he walks in for Mincha. As he walks into the base meadow, she goes to take a sitter, goes to his place, looks up, and sees that everyone is looking at him. Hmm, why is everybody staring at me? Doesn't know what to make about it. <clears throat> Starts davening. After Shimon Esrei, <clears throat> takes three steps back. Again, looks up and notices that everyone is looking at him. <clears throat> my time. I said, why? <clears throat> why is everybody staring at me? <clears throat> after davening, goes over to a friend of his and says, hey, why is everybody looking at me? His friend says, you didn't hear? <clears throat> Chaim says, no, hear what? His friend says, well, <clears throat> I'm sorry to be the one to tell you this, but uh, <clears throat> last night your house burnt down. 2 a.m., the furnace exploded. The entire structure was engulfed in flame. Chaim, his wife, his children were untouched because they weren't there. They were at the brother-in-law's house. But you see, the pivotal moment in Chaim's existence was not that Thursday night phone call, do come, don't come, my place, your place, Uh uh-uh. The pivotal moment in Chaim's existence was the previous Rosh Hashanah when there was a diyun, there was a judgment. It's not just who will live and who will die. The exact method, the exact manner. And Chaim was shown the verdict. Read the book. Read what the judgment was about. For whatever which reason, you and your family were saved from it. But this was the diyun, this was the judgment. And how many times that Hashem saves us? How many times that Hashem protects us and we're unaware of it? Melech Ozer Umoshio Mogain. Melech Ozer means Hashem helps me. Hashem, you're my helper. 60% me, 40% you, God. We're good together. We're a good team. 
Moshia is when I'm in the pit. I'm deep in the pit that I cry, Hashem, I can't do it. I can't help. Then at least I begin to realize it's all Hashem. But what's mugging? Shield. Shield. What's shield? I'd like to know what shield is. I was running on Route 306 in Muncie. And when I run, I'm very into my own world. Usually I'm working on something. And I'm very, very focused. In any case, I'm running. And it's a wet, rainy night. And as I'm running on Route 306, a car comes too close to me and splashes me and breaks my stride. As a result, I sort of like stop for a moment. And then a few steps later, I put my foot into the street. And a car coming the other direction, and I feel the wind. And then I did the math. Had the first car not come too close, not splashed me, I wouldn't have broken my stride. Instead of my foot being just going into the street, my foot would have been about center of the street. The car was here, body here. It would have ended very badly. Mogain means when Hashem shields us, Hashem protects us, and I'm unaware. I didn't even know. I was unaware of it. How many times does Hashem shield us, protect us, and we're unaware? Understanding that Hashem runs the world. Understanding that Hashem is totally involved in everything in creation. That's emuna. Bitochen means knowing that Hashem loves me more than I love me, and ultimately knowing that Hashem knows better than I what's for my best. That's bitochen, and that's where the real work comes in.